hearts up to your word tonight. Open our hearts up to you. Let us see you properly. Come on, Father, reform us so we can see you rightly. Erase all the misconceptions, wrong point of views we have of you, of your goodness and your mercy. Just erase them all, Father, with the truth of who you are. Just begin to see you rightly, Father, so we can walk, so we can walk properly, so we can be a right reflection of you to this world. God, open our eyes and let us see rightly. Give us eyes to see with, Lord, ears to hear with. compliments I, I, I think I've ever received. I was in a village trying to preach the gospel and people didn't want it. I'd been hiking in there for several months at different times and nobody was interested. And, and usually in those situations you either end up at the demon possessed person's house or the person who's dying and can't get healed or, or at the, the bar. <laughs> Not because you're drinking but because usually the drunks will let you talk to them. So I eventually, in most villages where, where I go into and there's nobody born again, you, you almost inevitably end up in one of those three places. And I'm pretty comfortable going into a bar and sitting down and talking to people. It does not bother me at all. And, and uh, there was this particular fellow in there. He's an older guy. And, you know, he, he, he was just a career drunk. You know, and they drink hard moonshine. Their life's hard. They don't have hope that anything's ever going to be different. So they console themselves, you know usually pretty early in their lives by just staying inebriated with moonshine. And this fellow was probably the same, and uh, he might have been in his late 60s or so, 70s. And I began, uh, I began talking to him, just talking to him about Jesus. And, and he got real close when I started talking to him. I mean, real close. <laughs> and he had the worst breath of any human I've ever smelled in my life. I mean, he, he, he had been urinating on himself for Lord knows how long. I mean, he, he just had surrendered all care of life. And his breath was so bad. I'm, it was just, and he's right here as I'm trying to tell him about Jesus. You know, I'd take a step back and he'd take a step forward. <laughs> I'd take a step back, he'd take a step forward. And, and I'm sitting there trying to tell him about Jesus, and it was so he was so repulsive uh, because of the physical things. 
and, and I'm trying to tell him that Jesus loves him. And, uh, you know, I was taking another step back, and, and the Holy Ghost just struck my heart. And he says, where are you going? He says, you stand there and tell him about me. So I did. And it was just like trying not to vomit while you're witnessing to him and loving on him. Literally trying not to throw up. And I stood there, and, 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 and it was difficult in the moment, but after a few few seconds, minute, I don't know, somehow or another, the Lord broke my heart with compassion for him. And it's like I didn't even smell his breath, even though I did. And I just really locked in on him with compassion in a way that I couldn't because I was so offended by, by his, his outward manifestations of, of his life his lifestyle and his decisions and um, and I just really man I just I just started to love on him in a way that's just it's just God's love coming out of you it's not even natural it's the supernatural love of God that's been spread abroad in your heart and and he just stopped and he looked at me and he and he said would you come to my house in, in front of all these other drunks that you know he drinks with on a daily basis he said will you come to my house and most of them were just laughing and carrying on and making fun of everything you know and I said absolutely I said if you take me to, to your house I'll go and he said will you really and I said I will I'll go right now and he says I believe you and I said why do you believe me he says because I see Jesus in your eyes when you look at me that guy never heard gospel in his life and, and somehow or another, he, God did something to me and convicted me of, of being repulsed. And no, undoubtedly, that's how God feels about all of us uh, when we approach him outside of righteousness and imperfection and, and, and rebellion and disobedience and all those things. It has to be just, a, just a, the most foul thing to him being holy and perfect yet there's something in him that has him stay his place and allows us to draw near and, and when I was able to let the Holy Ghost convict me they're preaching the gospel and it not being right my words were right my presentation is professional I am a master at witnessing I've been doing it for 20 years on the side of trails every day I'm really good at it uh, I have honed the gifts that God has given me. And that's not bragging. It's just I have honed my gifts by use. And, uh, and all of that was right, but it was all wrong. Because I was not coming from a place of Jesus. And I was not really representing Jesus, even though his words were coming out of my mouth. And I was there on a mission from Jesus. But because of the place of my heart with this man... I, I was not being a true image bearer of who Jesus was, but somehow or another, God let me let me feel that conviction, and, and I repented there in the moment. And all of a sudden, He could see Jesus in my eyes. And that's what He said. I see Jesus in your eyes. And uh, you know, not just it was just one of them moments. It was an epiph epiphany. 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 Is that right? Or sometimes the things just get jumbled up. And, uh, but it was really God just in his kindness making me 
see the need to truly represent him. Because it's easy to say words, but do they really see Jesus when they look at you? And so, anyway, are we live now, Brother DJ? Okay, are we videoing tonight? Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to post it. Okay. We're going to let you stick around another week. (laughs) And you're saying, yeah, find somebody who wants the job that I do. (laughs) I love you, Jesus. Come on, Holy Ghost. It is live. I'm right there. I didn't think that was going out, but never mind. Uh, I'm sorry. I was. Okay. There you go, boom. There it goes. All right. Yeah, there you go. All right. Okay. I'm excited about moving forward tonight, y'all. Um, Genesis chapter 13 is where we left off and where we're going to start. Did y'all chew on what I said last week? I, I just, it, that, that revelation that God gave me has blown my mind. And, and now rereading again and again and again, Hebrews, there are so many things in the life of Abraham from that point forward I just have to look at it differently now. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, I just want to pick up, you know, I want to deal with Abram t- today and again. And in chapter 13 and verse 8, we're going to start there. And, you know, the thing I want to talk about mostly tonight, or at least beginning, is, is that humility is the key. Humility is the key. You know, we, we ended last week talking about how a righteous man falls seven times, but, you know, he, he gets back up. And that's what makes him righteous. Um, in chapter 13, verse 8, I'll just go ahead and read. It says, So Abraham said to Lot, Let us not quarrel with each other or between our herdsmen, since we are relatives. Look at the vast land that is in front of you. Let's settle in different regions. If you choose the land on the left, then I'll go right. And if you want land on the right, then I'll go left. <clears throat> so in this moment, holding with the thought of last week, damage is done. Uh, Abraham, you know, his decisions, Abram's decisions brought them to this point where they had irreconcilable differences. And, and it was just too late at that moment for things to go, to go forward together. And so Lot presses the issue. Abraham gives a, 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 a solution. And I've talked about this, this aspect before here in the house with the family. You know, Abram being the greater, he, he made himself the lesser. He humbled himself to his nephew. Uh, I, I now see that through a whole different reason of why he humbled himself. I think now it was out of the responsibility of the guilt that he felt for the decisions that had brought him to this point. And so, but either way, he does right as much as he can in the moment, and he humbles himself to his nephew. 
and he lets his nephew choose which way he wants to go. Nephew makes a decision. And what's amazing about this is that it didn't change any of the decisions that Abraham had made to get them to this point. It didn't fix their relationships in between each other. But I was reading this morning in Isaiah 66 uh, in the house, and, and it starts off in verse 2, in Isaiah 66, 2, in the Passion, it says, but this is Yahweh talking, but there is one my eyes are drawn to, the humble one, the tender one, the trembling one who lives in awe of all I say. But there is one my eyes are drawn to, the humble one. And it just shows you the value that God places on humility. David in Psalms 51, you know, it's his, his great psalm of repentance and uh, coming out of his, <coughs> excuse me, his ordeal with, with Bathsheba and his sin and his adultery and his confrontation by the prophet. It, you know, and, and in verse 17, he pins that famous line. It says, the fountain of, or in the New King James verse, it says, the sacrifices of God, in Psalm 51, 17, it said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And these are, these are verses of hope for people like me and you, the imperfect ones. And... and um, I like how it says in the Passion in 51, 7, 17, it says, The fountains of your pleasure is found in the sacrifice of my shattered heart before you. You will not despise my tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Bow low in God's awesome presence, and he will eventually exalt you as you leave the timing in his hands. In the King James, it says... Uh, Humble yourself, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So Abraham is doing his best to recover from his, his, his wrong decisions and following the flesh and, 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 his, and his manipulative ways that brought Ill, Ill gain into the family that resulted in there being strife in, in, in his relationship with Lot and in their, in their family that eventually led to the split, right? So he does everything he can at that point to humble himself before his nephew and before God. And the immediate response after he humbles himself before his nephew is, is that in chapter 14, he gets a visit. Or in, I'm sorry, 13, 14. It says that after Lot separated from him, Yahweh spoke to Abram. Lift up your eyes and look around you to the north, the south, the east, and the west. As far as you can see in every direction is the land that I will give to you forever. To you and your seed. I will multiply them until they are as numerous as the specks of dust on the earth. If anyone could count the dust on the earth, then your offspring could also be counted. Now get up and walk through the land. Its length and its breadth. All the land you walk upon will be my gift to you. And it says in verse 18, Abram moved his camp and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built another altar to Yahweh. 
I, I believe that in light of the scriptures that we just read and, and the way he dealt with, with Lot in humility and humbled himself to his nephew, that the Lord's eyes fell upon him with favor again because of the humility that Abram decided to dress himself in, even though it was coming out of a mess. And, and sometimes when the Lord sees us coming to a place of humility and lowering ourselves to whoever we've had the interaction with that, that's not going right, and to him. I think sometimes when we humble ourselves to the people that we're in conflict with, the Lord actually sees it as us humbling ourselves to him. And, you know, we, so often we, we think that things get fixed by words or, or just saying something to the Lord, and we leave the other party completely out of the equation. And the Lord just feels no responsibility to respond to us until we make things right with the person that actually is offended with our decisions and the ones that we have conflict with. And Abram has no, and here there's no mention of him actually addressing God in this whole situation. He just responds in a way that actually shows a level of understanding of the character of Yahweh. He humbled himself. And in by doing so, he once again provoked Yahweh to come and speak to him. Because he had done nothing right up to that point uh, coming out of this situation that would, according to everything we've seen up to that point about how he received his other revelations and visitations from the Lord, he did nothing to provoke him according to the guidelines that he did before. Obeying on a thousand mile journey and completing the mission that Lord had given him that gave him that fresh visitation. He did not do that right here. But what he did do in the verses leading up to the encounter is that he humbled himself in conflict with, with, with somebody who was a lesser person in the, in, the, in, the, in the realm of authority. And God responded to him by visiting him and once again confirming the promise of the inheritance that he was given to him personally and to his descendants. And he even gets more exact with him, telling him your descendants are going to be, you're not even going to be able to number them all. And I believe all of that came out of God's, God's pleasure that he saw, that he received when he saw Abram humbling himself before Lot. And that provoked once again in Abram a deeper desire to want to worship God. And he got up between the place of ruins and he got up between the house of God and he moved one time. And he went about 30 miles and he sat down there at the Oaks of Mamre. And when he did, he built another Yahweh. And that's pretty much where he spent the rest of his time in his history that we have recorded. Not entirely, but mostly. And so in that moment, you actually see that he once again recognizes the mercy of God being given to him. And it causes him to want to worship. So he builds another altar. And so... I think that's pretty neat to me. I just, I like that. And you just keep seeing the tender mercies of God displayed over and over in his relationship with Abram. You see his long suffering. You see how patient it is with him. You know, and I, I, I didn't say this here. I said it uh, Sunday down the road when we we're uh, at Brother Clint's church. 
that, you know, when he came back out of Egypt and, and, and went to the original altar he had built there between, between Bethel and, and uh, Ai, and he made his sacrifice there at the altar and worshiped and prayed, you know, it doesn't say that God rejected it. Nowhere in there does it say that God rejected his sacrifice coming out of Egypt. And I believe that God recognized his heart and he recognized his struggle and he wasn't going to throw him and despise him just because he was not doing exactly right. He was willing to let him go as long a route as he needed to go to get back to the right place in his heart. And he wasn't willing to go all the way with, with, with getting right with God and going out of the, in the middle place all the way into the, the, the house of the Lord, the side of the Lord. He wasn't ready when he came out of Egypt. So he had to suffer some more. And out of the fracture of relationship, he finally got to the place where he was willing to surrender. And when he actually moved to Mamre, Mamre means strength or, or fatness. Hebron means associate, association to unite in fellowship. And so where, where he actually went to build his altar, when he left between the middle place, when he got out of the middle place, he actually went, and where he put his altar down, it was a place that's called to unite in fellowship. And I believe he actually stepped into a diff different degree of relationship with the Father. And he went into a different depth of fellowship and was more united with the Lord in that place than he was before. And, and it wasn't that he wasn't in, in, the, in the grasp of the Lord before, but it was a depth of relationship that he had not entered into. And all of a sudden, you see him going in a further in a further place in the love of God. So in, in Genesis chapter 14, this is kind of where I, I don't know if I'll get off at of this point tonight. I might. <coughs> in the beginning of 14, I'm not going to read it all. There's a lot of history there. And I, it's really, I don't understand why all of that's there. It gives a whole list of kings and relationships. that are just, just kind of like out there. And it's got to mean something, but I, I didn't figure it out. So it's interesting to me because there's like nine or ten verses that deal completely about people that are never mentioned again. And it's got to be significant. I just don't know what it is. So we're going to start um, past there. But anyway, Lot gets carried off. He gets carried off with all the other people by the kings that came and conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And in chapter 14, I didn't mark my verse, I'm in my notes. There's somebody who escapes. I think it might be 11 or 12, y'all. Y'all can find it. In chapter 14, verse so or so, 12 or 13. But it starts off saying this. One who escaped came to Abram the Hebrew and told him what had happened to Lot. And Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. One who escaped came to Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time in the Bible that the word Hebrew is mentioned. And as I was reading through this a while back, that kind of struck me as odd. I'd, I'd never really paid attention to that before. And, uh, you know, Hebrew means to actually to, to pass over, one from beyond or to cross over, depending on, on, on whose interpretation you look at. Uh, it actually, they actually believe that they're saying Abram, the, the one who crossed over, is kind of how that's interpreted by most people. But it's the first time that name is applied to him. And so I thought that was pretty interesting for him to be 
to be recognized as that person. Very possible he got that name down in Egypt. Uh, some people think he got it from, from one of his, his antepasados, his um, uh, previous people's Eber. Eber. Uh, that's probably some truth in there, I guess. But we don't really know exactly why they called him that. Ancestors, thank you. So I, I looked it up. And it was a pretty interesting trail that, that it led to for me. I'd never really seen all of this put together like this, and so it was really interesting to me. But the next time you actually find the word Hebrew is in Genesis 39, 14. And it's in a very negative sense. You have Joseph who, who has been carried away into slavery and sold into the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife wants a relationship with him. He absolutely refuses in integrity and, and righteousness and, and honor. You know, he runs out of the house. She screams and makes a, makes a lie about the whole situation. And she actually says, and this is just part of verse 14 in chapter 39, she actually says it like this. See my husband, he brings this Hebrew foreigner here to make fools of us. My husband brings this Hebrew foreigner. So that's a pretty big gap between Genesis 14 and, and chapter 39. Before you see that word again. And you're, you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So you're now into the fourth generation. Now the only interaction that we know through scripture that the Egyptians had with Hebrews is with Abram. And when Abram went into Egypt, how did he handle himself? Lying and deceiving. And curse, curse, a curse came on the people because of him. And he was the one doing the lying and deceiving. The king, so frustrated and fearful of what God might do to him, he, he gives him a bunch of stuff just to get out of the country and not be mad. And you get four generations down, and you read this, and you can see, to me, I, I see the connotations with which she said this. And, and, and if you go further in, in Genesis chapter 43, is where it shows up the next time. And now Joseph is second in charge of all of Egypt. And he's got his brothers sitting there. And in verse 32, it says, in 43:32, it says, First they served Joseph who was seated apart from his brothers, then the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians by themselves. Why? It would have been utterly offensive for the Egyptians to eat at the same table with the Hebrews. So you now have full-on racism. Right there. And it all, to me, seems to go back to the father of faith going somewhere he wasn't supposed to be, conducting himself in a way that was completely illegal and counterfeit to who he really was now. 
And instead of going into a place and representing the God that he now followed, he went into a place that did not have anything to do with his God. And instead of showing them a difference, he acted just like them and was better than them that acted like them. And when he left out of there, he left a legacy of the wrong kind. I, I, it's not much of a stretch for me personally to think that this resentment that's coming out of this woman's mouth and the way the Egyptians looked at the, at the Hebrews, it's hard for me not to believe it doesn't find its roots all the way back to, to Abram when he was there among them doing what he did. And, you know, that right there needs to make us take a minute and just think about the generational consequences that come with all of our decisions. You know, I said this the other night, and, uh, and I'm going to talk about it some more because we, and I said this really strongly Sunday, but, you know, we so often, the first lie that hell wants us to believe when, when we start to move from the place God has placed us, and, we, and that can be physical, but more, more, more than physical, it's the spiritual place, the path of the Lord. When we begin to move off of that place because we're being forced by hardships around us or friction in relationships or, or, or difficult times, when we begin to yield to them things and move to a place that we're not supposed to be, we begin to act out of the, outside of the nature of Christ that's in us because we're not under the grace to properly show him because we're not in the place we're supposed to be and then all of a sudden we are doing things that don't really represent the God that we know and serve and, and Abram found himself in that situation and so when you when you begin to look at this we need to take into consideration the importance of our decisions because the first lie that hell wants us to think when we begin to waver in our steadfastness and our decidedness to follow the Lord and to stay in the path that he's put us on that has brought peace to us, the first thing we begin to think is everybody else around me is going to be okay. They're going to make it. They love God. They, they know Jesus. You know, they got the church. and you know They got this. And, and, and my decision is not going to have no consequence on them because they're going to be okay. And that is really the, one of the very first lies that hell wants us to take hold of and, and, and not turn loose of. Because the minute you begin to, to release yourself from the consequences of your decisions, it's a lot easier just to think about you. And you immediately become a self-seeking person. And the minute you're self-seeking, you are going to serve yourself and yourself is going to take you into Egypt. And, and so we need to, to stand on guard against the lie that our lives don't matter and our decisions do not have impact on other people. They don't just have impact on the people in my house. My decisions have impacts to the fourth and fifth and to, the, to eternity on every generation that's going to come out of me. And not even out of my own kids, but out of the people that I'm in close relationship with that I have influence directly over their lives. My decisions carry a weight that it might not even be me that pays the price. Abram, he didn't have any struggle with the Egyptians. Not one. He left out of there with all of their stuff. 
But then came the generation that had to pay for his deception and him not acting as a true ambassador of Christ. And it was the great-grandson that started. And then we know 400 years of slavery followed for the rest of his descendants. I went back and reread it this morning because I never thought about it like this, y'all. And, and, you know, when, when I think it's chapter 15 or 16, um, when God visits Abram again, and he tells him, you know, he gives him a little bit more of the, the vision of what's coming for, for his descendants. And he tells him, your, your people are going to be 400 years in slavery. He never told them where they were going to be. It's probably the mercy of the Lord that he was exercising over Abram right then because I think Abram probably would have realized, oh, I'm never going to outrun this mistake. And, and I think God out of mercy probably didn't tell him where that slavery was going to be at because he would have associated his decision with the way they were going to be treated later. And so it's important that we understand that we matter. Our decisions matter. It might not, it might not look like much to other people. They might not think they matter. They might think that we're, we can do what we can do and everybody should just be happy but there is a consequence that's going to come that, that you just can't even see the end of where that's going to be, the ripple effect. And so when I got to, to reading that about Abram the Hebrew, and I saw the next place it was mentioned, that, that just amazed me. That she actually, the wife of Potiphar, actually used his name almost like it was a, a byword, a, almost like a cuss word. That Hebrew, I mean, that's how I see her saying it. He brought that Hebrew in here to mock us. As if she was already playing on the, on the, the emotions and the, and, the, and the viewpoints that permeated all of Egypt. And, and it just, it's amazing to realize that it's his grandson that's getting slandered right there for being a Hebrew. It's almost as if he has no opportunity to be innocent because he's a Hebrew. <laughs> Y'all think racism's new? Y'all better catch up to the game of hell. Hell's been doing this way longer than the United States has been in place. You think racism just started? Jeez, come on, y'all. Jesus is the answer. He is the only one that can make men's hearts new. And see, when you don't really see yourself as an image bearer of, of the living God, then you allow yourself to act outside of that. You give yourself permission to act any way you want to because I'm really not made in his image. But when you actually begin to walk in true identity that I am his beloved, I am made in his image, it actually does something in your brain that makes you think that I should have to walk like he walks. I should have to talk like he talks. I should have to deal with other people like he deals with other people because I'm made in his image. I am his son. I am an image bearer of the one who created me. And it's, it's like this this. Conscious and subconscious power comes on your life to walk differently because you're now holding yourself to a different standard. You know, it's just amazing how that works. And, and you see that Abram struggled with that. 
even in the, the manifestations of God in his life and the promises of God in his life, you still see as he makes some of these decisions and he's moved by emotion and outward circumstances that, that lead him to fall in the flesh and puts him in turmoil and strife and problems. You see that it comes out of, out of his lack of faith that he really is the beloved of God. That he really is a son of Yahweh. And that his father loves him and his only desire and his only plan and his only thought for him is peace. And because he can't get his mind all the way wrapped around that truth, he surrenders to the fear and the lie of hell that he's got to do life on his own and go figure it out somewhere else. And the Lord let him go and the Lord let him experiment that and the Lord let him receive the reward of that and, and you can see that that decision had consequential it had, a, had, a, had, had generational consequences. And then I got to thinking about Egypt. You know, Abram, he came out of Egypt with everybody. He went back to the altar. He worshiped the Lord. He, he had to fallen out with Lot. He, he humbled himself for Lot. He got a visitation from the Lord. God promised him all over again everything. He, he left there and went and built a new altar. In a place that's called to unite in fellowship. And he, and he went deeper in his relationship with the Lord. And I believe confidence and, and, and a more steadfast spirit came on him. But still there's consequences going on. It's just amazing. And I, I don't want us to feel bad because all of us have made decisions that we're living with the consequences of still. And, and this is not to make us hopeless. But it is to make us to walk in a series of soberness where we're standing right now and to, and, to, and to go forward under the responsibility of understanding of who we are in Christ and to actually live our lives out that way starting now. In, in chapter 16 is in verse 1 it says this, Now Sarai had borne no children to Abram. <clears throat> Sarai had borne no children for Abram. She had an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, where do you think they got that Egyptian slave girl, y'all? Probably in Egypt. In the place he wasn't supposed to be. Lying and getting rich with deception. She had an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, please listen. Since Yahweh has kept me childless, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps through her I can build you a family. Since Yahweh has kept me childless. I don't believe she had any relationship with Yahweh at all at this point. Just for the fact that she didn't even recognize him when he was sitting at her table. Until the scales came off. I believe she knew Yahweh by name that Abram talked about and followed. I don't believe she had a relationship with him yet. And, and she, she immediately, she comes to Abram and she said, please listen, since Yahweh has kept me childless, go sleep with my maidservant. Go sleep with Egypt. Because see, I remember you taking me to Egypt when the lamb was barren and wasn't producing nothing for us to live off of. 
and you thought we could make it in Egypt and we got pretty rich down in Egypt? Well, I'm barren. So just go on back to Egypt and get what we need. I believe that's a direct result of Abram's decision still being played out. Y'all think about that for a moment. You go in there and get me a child from that Egyptian slave woman since God won't give it to me. And let's go to Egypt since God can't give us food to eat here in the promised land he brought us to. Who is she echoing at this moment? It's not even an original idea in her, what she's doing. This originated with Abram. If we went to Egypt and we got all of this stuff, and we got more stuff than we had before, well, maybe Egypt's still the answer. And so he's still dealing with the consequences inside of his own home. Even though he's built a new altar and went into a deeper level of relationship and, 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 and united deeper in the Lord, man, the consequences just keep coming. <laughs> I, I just, I was reading that and I was just this morning and I was just thinking, wow, that's pretty amazing. I, I've never seen that before. And it just makes me somber almost because I, I need to make sure that I personally am making the right decisions. One of the things that you can use to decide, and I, and I used this here last week, and I want to revisit it because it needs to be said. In, in Proverbs 10, y'all remember what that said? That the blessings of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And it adds no sorrow with it. The blessings of the Lord makes one rich and it adds no sorrow with it. As we were talking, you know, last week, a lot of things can bring increase to your life. But the next thing you should do in that moment where you're trying to decide, is this God giving me this or is this the world? You need to ask yourself, what voice brought me here? Is it the voice that's led me into the path of life? You know, the Bible says my sheep will know my voice. We have a responsibility to know his voice. We must cultivate our ears to be able to recognize his voice. We must walk in a degree of intimacy and closeness with him that his voice is familiar to us. And that when he speaks, we actually are able to discern that's the Lord speaking. And when the, hell, when, when the devil, when hell speaks to us, we, we should be able to discern that is not the voice of my shepherd. I've had hell speak to me a couple of times and I've, I've, I've recognized that's not God speaking to me. I was in a service one time in the villages of Mexico and I'm, I might have shared this here in and I remember, man, God, it was a brand new work, and we're there. And I mean, there's like 30 people in one family in here worshiping God, and they wouldn't even be in the same room before, months, months before we got there. Now God has brought them, everybody there. It's awesome. Everybody's clapping, singing, worshiping God. And, and this voice said to me, you have done such a good job. Because <laughs> I was actually in the moment admiring the work of God, families being reconciled, 
gospel being established in a place where it's never been. Just all of it. I'm just in awe. You know, I get to be a part of it, and I'm watching this, and it's just like wonderful. And I hear that voice as I'm rejoicing over what I'm seeing and instantly recognize that is not God speaking to me. Which then kind of puzzled me because, and I, I'm wondering why is hell telling me I'm doing a good job with all these people in here singing to God? And, and, and uh, the Holy Ghost began to explain to me why hell would say such a thing. And, and so there, there, there is a way to know the difference in the voices. My sheep will know my voice. That is in the Bible. God told me, Rachel's your wife. I knew it was the voice of the Lord speaking to me. God told me, come here, do this. I knew it was the voice of the Lord speaking to me. There is a way to know and walk in the depth of relationship maturity with the Lord that you know his voice. And if you don't know his voice, it is not because he's not speaking. It's because you are not listening. And if you hear his voice and begin to move in obedience to what you hear him saying, even though you might not be wholly confident, you're not 100% sure, but you think something in you tells you that's God. But you begin to make steps of obedience, and then you actually see God begin to confirm his word. You begin to understand that was God. And the next time that voice comes, there's not the same hesitation as it was before. There's an assurance that's the same voice that I thought spoke to me last time, and I did what I thought was God, and this is what happened. And all of a sudden, there's faith rising up in your heart to, to, to rush into the word of obedience to what God is speaking. And you actually begin to know the voice of the Lord. So what voice brought you there? And the other thing is, is this increase coming to my life, if you take a minute and take a step back, is this actually going to bring blessing or is this going to bring sorrow to my life? I think it might have been you, Brother Jim, I, I, that when you make a big purchase, if it's over a certain amount, you wait a certain, and is that right? Is that you? <laughs> uh, it, it, I remember him telling us that, that impacted me. I, I think it might have been $100 or two. I don't remember what the dollar amount, but it's something like that. It might have gotten bigger as you've gotten richer. But, <laughs> but we'll just say $100, you know, just as a, Number because I don't remember exactly. He ain't telling. Um, he just made the statement that if I have to make a purchase of over $100, I at least take 24 hours to sleep on it. Is that more or less right? And, and you know, so many times when we're offered something that is shiny and sparkling and it actually looks like it's going to be a good thing, we don't even take a, we don't even take a breath. We don't think what this is actually costing us. Is this invitation? Is this relationship? Is this job? Is this house? Is this car? Is this show? Whatever it might be, is this going to bring sorrow to me with its increase in a place I don't want to pay? You know, and this, these, these, this is not some deep revelatory thing. This is just a way for us to be able to examine life as we go forward. Because I guarantee you that every opportunity that Abram got, he began to look at things through a different lens. And I'm going to show you. And uh, y'all like that thing about racism? I mean, not like, but 
Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I do not want to make things more difficult for my grandchildren. I, I, I was dealing with an issue with one of my kids and you know, and I and we were past the mad part, so we we're now having to. I'm gonna cut you real deep, and real slow, and with love, and you know, I'm gonna crush you a little bit with love. And, and I and I just began to tell him, I was like, you know, what you do reflects on everybody in our family. I said, there's nowhere I go here that I have to be ashamed to say that I'm Billy Barton's son. I can go anywhere my daddy has been, anywhere. And I can say his name with pride and know that I'm instantly going to be treated a different way just because how he acted when he was there before I got there. And I said, that was a gift my daddy has given me. That's a gift. I said, I have done my best for 20 years that anywhere you go, in any country I've walked in, son, that if you come behind me and say, I'm Bo Barton's son, you know it's going to give you a certain degree of credibility and acceptance when you get there. I've done my best to be that person. I've done my best to make decisions that would give you a place of honor if you came after me there. Because that's what my daddy did. And I, that, that is the right way to look at life's decisions that are coming at us one after another. What is this going to mean, not even to my son, not even to my grandkid, who I'll probably will see in Jesus' name. What's it going to be for my great-grandchild that I'll probably will never lay eyes on? Or my great-great-grandchild? See, we as children of God have to start thinking generationally. We have got to get out of the mindset of the modern world and the modern church that is only about right now. That is a lie from hell. Real sons and daughters and real kingdom-minded people are not thinking about right now. They're thinking about five generations down the road. I'm thinking about the day that one of my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids gets up and says, I'm a ninth-generation preacher, lover of God. I want to make sure that my life, and, and you know, and I'm, and, and I'm telling you this, and I'm not telling you that I have perfected this. That is not where that's coming from. But it is the goal that I've set before my eyes. And it's the goal that constantly brings rebuke to my life when I stop and reflect on decisions and attitudes and treatments of people and, and handling a certain situation that fall outside of the lines that's going to allow blessing to flow to people that come after me. It's always right there buffering me back into the path. And I'm just like everybody else. There's a moment I'm over here and there's a moment over here, but I'm trying to do my very best to be right here in the middle. And I have narrowed down my choices every step of my life of what's okay. And it has very little to do with what's okay for me. There's things I don't watch on TV because of my children. And I do not believe they'll put me in hell. They're not going to edify me by no means. But I have made my faith decision to walk with Jesus. But I can't sit right there and watch it with my kids and think it's going to work out just as good for them as it is for me. Because they don't walk in the same degree of dedication, love, and, and revelation of God yet. A couple of them do, but not all of them. 
And so I have to make decisions based on what it's going to do to the people around me and, the, and how far will them consequences go if I make the wrong one. And, and it makes me want to take a lot of time before I make each decision. Because <laughs> they get very, very pricey now when you make the wrong one. And it doesn't mean God don't love you. It don't mean God won't help you dig out of it. But man, he'll, he'll, Brother David told me once, David Hogan, my boss, we've we been done with a certain situation, and, and I'd gone to me and Rachel, and we'd humble ourselves, you know, real embarrassing. We need help. He's like, all right. He said, but you need to understand, you dug this hole with a shovel, but you're probably going to fill it in with a spoon. <laughs> so you need to make sure you really want to fill this hole back in. And most of the times when we're faced with the reality that you're going to take a spoon to fill up a hole you dug with a backhoe, we're just not willing to be that dedicated to making it right. And we don't stay the course to make it right. And we just say, oh, it'll be okay. They'll be all right. And the next thing you know, there goes the consequences rippling across the pond of generations. Abraham is the father of faith because he kept getting back up, y'all. And that's what I want to do. I want to keep getting back up. I don't want to fall in the same hole. But when I do get back up, I want to make sure that when I fill in, don't go back to it. And, and Proverbs 22 said, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Proverbs 20, 21 says, an inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. <laughs> An inheritance, get too bad Abraham didn't have the Bible. Man, he probably wouldn't have made all these mistakes. <laughs> An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. All right, this is where I want to end tonight. In Genesis 14, 17. <clears throat> And this, we, we need to let God renew our minds. We need to let the Lord renew our minds. In Genesis 14, 17, in, in James, before I go there, in James, there's a verse, it's in chapter 3, and it's talking about wisdom. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly how it is, but it says that wisdom, there's a wisdom that comes from above, comes from God. There's another kind of wisdom, and James uses the word sensual. It's sensual. And, and when you study that out, it just means there's a wisdom that appeals to your flesh. It's sensual. It's seductive to your flesh. It sounds like wisdom. It sounds good. It appeals to you. But it only appeals to you at a surface level, and it doesn't come from the Lord. It's actually evil. Because what it does, it generally turns your focus onto you and what's good for you. And it tells you to focus on you because you're all that matters. It's sensual. It seduces you. 
seduces your flesh. And your flesh does not think about other people. Your flesh thinks about you. That's why there's a war. And Abram, he dealt with that. He, he had to deal with those, those, those same carnal desires that we fight on a day-in and day-out basis and are crucified. He, he was no different than us. And in Genesis 14, 17, So you need, to, you need to know what wisdom you're, you're, you're actually hearing. Because there's a wisdom that comes from above and there's a wisdom that comes from below. One produces peace in your heart and produces generational blessings on everybody that comes after you. And the other produces gratification in the moment, self-gratification in the moment. And it absolutely says, who gives a rip about anybody else except me? All right, Genesis 14, 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shebahal, known as the King's Valley. And Melchizedek, and Melchizedek, and who, uh, who was both a priest of the Most High God and the king of Salem, brought out to Abram bread and wine. He spoke over him of special blessing, saying, Blessed is Abram by God, Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, Most High, whose power delivered your enemies into your hands. As Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he possessed. I've taught about this here a couple times, I think, in different moments. This is the first time you find tithing in the Bible. It has nothing to do about a law, has nothing ado about peasing God. It had everything to do about walking in faith. And, and it's amazing that when the high priest came out, who, who most people believe is, is a Christophany, is Jesus right here. And I, I, I kind of believe that too. I do believe it. I don't kind of believe it. But he, he, he comes out, and the first thing he does, being high priest, he, he refreshes Abram. And he brings him bread and wine. And when Abram has been refreshed by the high priest ministering to him, it produces a response in Abram that nowhere have we found in the Bible up to this point that's been required by God to please God. It just came out of that place in his heart that says, I want to do something to show gratitude. You have refreshed me. So let me give you 10%. I don't know how he came up with that number. I don't know why it wasn't nine, wasn't five, or wasn't 50, or wasn't at all, but he decided on 10. Maybe it was a whisper of God that he had. But he gave him 10%. And, you know, and later when you get into the law of Moses, you find uh, a lot of teaching about tithing and all the different things. But, you know, if you read the Bible, you actually find out that Jesus always tells you what they did in the Old Testament was just a starting point. 10% is just a starting point. That doesn't mean you've got to put more than 10% in the offering plate for your tithe. But if you think 10% appeases the Lord, you are, you're missing the whole point. God wants everything. And that doesn't mean you have to sign your 
complete paycheck and give it to the church. That's what some people want you to think because they're getting rich and living well off of your money. But God is after your entire heart. He is after everything that is you. And he wants to be Lord of everything. He wants to own everything that you own. He wants everything you have to be at his disposal at any moment. And if it is not, then you have a problem with the Lord. And it's not about giving your tithe to the church. This is about coming into a place where there's a level of gratitude in your heart that realizes everything I have, God gave me. I was talking to somebody the other day, dealing with a situation. I said, you got to understand, everything I have, God has given me. I left here 20 years ago with a suitcase and a, and a recliner and, and a wife and a baby and another one on the way and a couple hundred dollars in my wallet. And everything I have, I have no misunderstanding of how I got it. God has given it to me. And, and so I feel like everything I, I have belongs to God. Do I put everything I get in, in the church offering plate when it goes by? No, I don't. Do I tithe off everything that comes into my hand? Uh, yes, I do. I do my very best to always complete that, not out of an obligation to a law, but at, because of a degree of faith that I know God gave it to me, and I show you right now, God, that you're going to give me more, and I believe you're going to do that. So here's a tithe. And then I, we, we, we go ahead and start giving the rest of it away in one form or another. Um. Uh, it's not about giving a certain amount on your church envelope. It's about Lord actually being owner of everything you possess and him being able to say, give this, do that, let people be in your house. Let do. A funny story about Moe is that <coughs> when he was staying with Rob in Montgomery, our friend, Brother Rob, Moe came downstairs one morning from school and, and there was a, a homeless, I think it was a homeless, kind of demon-possessed, drug addict, Sleeping on the couch. I mean, like, street guy. Full-on street person. You know, and they live in a really nice neighborhood over there in, in Montgomery. And, you know, he walked down, and Moe's getting his bowl of cereal. And Moe, Moe's kind of very reserved, you know, emotionally, outwardly. He just walks down the stairs and sees the homeless guy. Hey, how you doing? He goes, gets his bowl of cereal and sits down at the table. And... Uh, Rob said, this is so-and-so from so-and-so street. And he said, yep, this is just like my house. <laughs> I don't ever know who's going to be sitting down here when I come. Uh, there's just something about feeling gratitude for, for the life God's given you that should produce a, a, an understanding that everything I got is yours. You want me to let people stay in my house? You want me to give my car away? You want me to give more money? You want me to feed people? You want me to, to be hospitable to people? You want me to give my time away? It's not just about money. It's just that God deserves everything. And that 10% is just something that should go, wake up, it belongs to him now. And it actually shows you where you're really at in your understanding of gratitude with him. So that's not what I wanted to say. All right, I'm going to skip because there's a point I want to make here, and I don't want to teach about that. There's no end to the stuff to talk about. But in verse 21, it says this. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Just give me the people you rescued <coughs> and keep all the spoils for yourself. Now, listen to this. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, 
I raised my hand to Yahweh. I raised my hand to Yahweh. God most high. I pledge a solemn oath to the possessor, to the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would keep nothing for myself that belongs to you, king. You know what he's looking at when he's saying that? He's looking at Egypt. I ain't keeping nothing from Egypt ever again. That's what he's doing right there. He's looking at that pagan, non-godly king over a horrific place. And he said, I have raised my hand. I made the decision for you even offered it. You understand? That's what's happening. He said, I have already pledged. Nothing you want to give me is coming into my hand. Because I've already been down this road once. And it cost me my nephew. The one I had to go save. So it don't matter what you want to give me. I have already pledged to God. No. See, that's where we have to begin to live when we get back up. And we fill that hole in. You, you take this hand or this hand, whichever one you feel more holy lifting. And you say, I pledge. No. No. When they come to offer it to me, the answer is no. And it's a done decision in you. No. And you just tell them, I've raised my hand and pledge. You, you, you start freaking some people out. You, I pledged to, to God most high. No. And they're going to look at you. Man, I, I've been put in situations in the past and people will start talking, and the conversation takes a left turn that, that I don't want no part of, or they start talking about some kind of scheme, whether it was inside of the ministry or whatever, and I'll just stand up and say, Holy Ghost, I go on record that I am not in agreement with anything coming out of their mouth. In the middle of the conversation, and just turn around and walk off. And people don't know how to deal with that. But it gets you out of some situations, because they quit offering stuff to you. They quit letting you be a part of their, their little conversations. Sometimes that's, that's what really needs to have happen. You, you should just go ahead and memorize this verse. You should just memorize it. I've raised my hand and pledged to, to Yahweh God most high. No. <laughs> and let them just think you've lost your mind because you have. And you're allowing Christ to give you a new one that won't allow you to participate in things you participated in before. You know, it's not that we didn't do it before. It's that we've just raised our hand and pledged that, no, we're not doing it again. Because it just costs too much to go back to that. And, and you know, I'd never seen that like that before. I thought he was just honoring God, and he is honoring God, but I, I see it far deeper now. He's just saying, uh-uh. <laughs> I am not doing this again. And, and so I want to stop right there because, you, you know, it, you see the consequences of decisions, but you also see somebody getting back up, God being merciful. I mean, he went out with 300 people from his house and defeated kings and their armies that had just been laying waste to the countryside. God's with him. But he shows his humility. He shows his tenderheartedness. He shows that he has a desire to be one who trembles and lives in awe of his word. And so God, he has patience with him. And so Abram, 
gains courage and he gains strength, but he also gains a steadfastness in himself to say, I've already raised my hand and pledged about this. And you see him leaving something that he doesn't go back to. So let's just pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. I love you and I bless you. And I just ask, Father, that you just make this just be just being life to us. Let it give us strength and courage. God, if we don't come out of this night with nothing else, let us come out with the fact that we need to raise our hand and make a pledge before we get into the situation. So the answer and the response is already built in. That it's preset. There's no thinking about it. There's no deciding. It is, I have raised my hand to you and pledged. No. And Father, that would save us so many problems. We wouldn't have to go back to the same situations again and again. I thank you, Father, for your truth. I thank you for the word. Thank you for the life of Abram that you're letting us see, Father, in new and different ways. Let us be encouraged and let us press forward into your promise, Father. You are good and you're merciful and you're kind and I love you. Amen. Come on, Jesus. Holy Ghost. Let him cut us off and we'll ask a couple questions. Are there any questions tonight? Anything, anything, anything?